0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop and all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is our Inter preview episode, and I'm joined by a guest to help me out with that. He is the host of two YouTube shows, Inter Worldwide and Football Worldwide. Anthony Privitera, welcome to Fortunopoly.
1: Thank you so much, Joe. It's good to see you again. It's good to speak to you. And you're the first person in the whole world that I'm speaking to in 2023. It's eight o'clock in the morning. The (laughs) The only other living thing I've spoken to in 2023 is my dog. So it's an absolute pleasure, man. I feel
0: so privileged to be the, the <laughs> first person you're speaking to. And then what's cool about this is for those who can't tell from the accent, you're in Australia, I'm in Canada, so I'm still in 2022. <laughs> so we're we're simultaneously wow. recording in two different years, which is kind of a little cool thing. But it's definitely a pleasure to have you on. It's been a while since uh, we last spoke. A, a lot's happened since then. We're going to spend most of today's episode previewing the marquee match of round 16 and that is of course Inter against Napoli at the Stadio Giuseppe Meazza. Before we get to the specifics of this match though I want to start with a quick recap of Inter's season thus far which I think is especially worthwhile considering that we've been off for you know nearly two months now because of the World Cup Inter come into this match with a record of 10 wins, no draws, and 5 losses. That puts the Nerazzurri on 30 points, which is 11 points back of Napoli. One of the big stories this summer was the return of Romelu Lukaku on loan from Chelsea, which might have been the biggest coup of all time from Beppe Marotta, or at least it seemed that way at the time. He started the season really well. He scored his first game back which was a 2-1 win over Lecce. He assisted in Inter's 3-0 win over Spezia. He also hit the bar in that match, so it looked like everything was going right back to where it was before he left to go to Chelsea under Antonio Conte, but it hasn't been that great since then. Lukaku suffered a thigh injury in training after the 3-1 defeat to Lazio, and he's only made two appearances since then. He played seven minutes in the Champions League against Victoria Pilsen and 22 minutes against Sampdoria and in Serie A. We'll do an injury update a bit later in the show, but how much of Inter's struggles, if we can call it that, would you attribute to the absence of Lukaku?
1: It's a good question. I think there's a couple of levels to it because most people know that Inter's going through a financial situation where you know the loan for Lukaku coming back was cheap by its standards to sell him for triple digits in the millions the year before and then to get him back on loan for a total of about Eight and a half to ten and a half million for the season, whatever it was, that potentially was the only little bit of money that we had to take to the bank for someone like DiBala. And even though I wasn't all for the Paulo DiBala signing, there's also no reason why it's taken this long to renew Milan Skriniar. So, from a financial point of view, that little bit of money that we've used to bring back Romelu Lukaku, our president Stephen Zhang has done that for nostalgic reasons. That's purely what it is, nostalgic reasons. There there was actually no real need to bring him back without fixing a couple of other things in the lineup first. So I guess if you want to delve that little bit deeper, a lot of our season struggles come back to choosing to sign Romelu Lukaku rather than dotting our I's and crossing our T's in other departments on the books or personnel-wise. In terms of his on-the-pitch performances, he just seems very sloppy, very unfit a lot of the time as well. And I think it's a mental thing for him as well, because when you get put on a pedestal the way that he did in such a short amount of time in his first time in Milan, you know, basically being painted as a King on a mural and it gets to your head a little bit and you end up with a one 110 million Euro transfer to Chelsea. You go there and you just, you can't hit the ground running. It's a hostile environment, not to mention the fans over in that pocket of London aren't exactly the nicest people in the world. And yeah, I think that he's regretting one big thing was to leave into the first time just because his um his favorite coach Conte left with him, and he's seeing that you know he's at the wrong end of his twenties now. Obviously, he's not he's not finished yet, but for someone his size, for someone carrying around that much muscle, that much weight, it's going to be tough for him to stay on top of his game. So, I'm pessimistic and I'm disappointed.
0: I wonder if he was expecting the reaction he got from Interisti because he wasn't exactly welcomed back with open arms, right? Like it was kind of like, okay, you left us. We're happy to have you back, but you need to still kind of regain our trust a little bit. And I guess with the injuries and all the the matches he missed, he hasn't really done that. He was obviously a key figure in Inter Scudetto run two seasons ago. He scored 24 goals and I think he had 10 assists that season just in Serie A. And then he had six more goals in other competitions. So 40 goal contributions in 44 matches, which is a ridiculous average. Now, he and Lautaro Martinez had a fantastic partnership that season with Lautaro playing as the second striker. And then with Lukaku moving on, Lautaro was forced to take on more of a sort of lead role, a first striker type of role. And he did fairly well last season playing in that role, which to me was a little bit unexpected. He scored 21 goals, which was a career best. He added three assists. This season, he's already up to seven goals and four assists, which is still pretty good. Edin Dzeko, at the age of 36, continues to deliver. He has five goals in Serie A, nine in all competitions. Nicolo Barella has been suddenly a goal-scoring, uh, uh, maybe not a machine, but he's scoring mm-hmm. at a, a much quicker clip than he's historically scored at, and they all seem to be bangers. too. <laughs> he doesn't score yeah. any any uh, aesthetically unpleasing goals. He's on pace to smash his career best of six goals that he set with Cagliati. Only Napoli have scored more goals than Inter. Napoli have scored 37, Inter have scored 34. So goal scoring hasn't really been the issue for Inter this season. It seems like the issue has been the number of goals that Inter have conceded. With 22 goals allowed, only six teams have conceded fewer goals than Inter. That's up from 15 goals at this point last season. What's changed with Inter's defending? Why do you think they're conceding more than they have in previous seasons?
1: I think that we, we obviously play with a higher line than we did um, when we were under Antonio Conte. And I think that last season, we just had a little bit more flair and a little bit more flame in terms of our heads being in the right places. Um, we were defending champs, champions last season. Um, so we had that, just sort of that accountability and responsibility. Football comes in cycles and we all see it in the modern game. It's very easy for a, a group of athletes to get deflated or to morally drop their heads. It's not, not like the old days, man. And so I think that, we've just been more susceptible to in game errors and in game mistakes. And a lot of our goals have come from the counter attack and De Vrij is just getting on in his years. I mean, we all saw his poor performance in the Derby where he um, basically just got completely turned around. It's not the first time he's had a, a borderline embarrassing match this season. uh, Alessandro Bastoni has been way behind the pace that we expect him to be. I've been very critical of him on my channel this season. He just honestly has looked like he doesn't want to be there a lot of the time. He's been sick as well, a fair bit. I know he's uh, juggling a newborn baby and with that comes with some inconsistencies, but he's been sick more often than he should have been. And, on top of that, our best defender, we have let the contract drag down to the last six months for Milan Skriniar, which is always going to pose its issues on the field. Whether or not we do get to re-sign him on a new contract, it doesn't change the fact of what's happened this season in our back line. That combined with the fact that our, our rotators in these positions are not world class, they're not even necessarily good enough to be on the bench for Inter, I know that they're not the worst players in the world, but when you're looking at your bench after that and you're substitute options for the centre-back positions are Acerbi, who, to his credit, hasn't been awful. Danilo D'Ambrosio, who once again will put on that that shirt and play with his heart and his head and everything. But it's not enough, Joe. It's it's not enough. Not if you want to compete for top honours. Um, not, not if you want to keep up with the pace at the top of the league. That's our biggest problem with our defence.
0: It'll be interesting to see if Inter play that high line Against Victor Osiman, because obviously with his pace and and also with uh, Cavada, that could be problematic with those guys getting behind that high line. The point on screen yard is something that's very familiar to Napoli fans as well, because we had the exact same situation with Lorenzo Insigne last season where as much as they were being professional about it you always had that kind of looming over the players' heads. And actually, we had that with a couple of players. Lee was another one. You wonder, you know, how much that affects the players' play on the field. For what it's worth, when Inter won the Scudetto two seasons ago, they had conceded 19 goals by this point in the season. So it's not like that can't be fixed, mind you. Inter went on a unbeaten run of like 20 games that season. So, yeah. you know, it took a lot of making up there. Now, there's a few other differences between that season and the current one. One is that Napoli are currently on 41 points at the moment, whereas Milan were on 37 points at that point two seasons ago. Napoli fans may not like what I'm about to say, but I don't think it would be realistic to expect Napoli to continue this torrid start to the season. I mean, you're going to lose matches here and there every once in a while. I think the question becomes whether Napoli will drop enough points to allow the likes of Milan, Juventus, Lazio, and Inter to get back into the Scudetto race. Another difference is that Inter have really struggled against teams in the top half of the table. The five losses were to Lazio, Milan, Udinese, Roma, and Juventus in that order. I actually think Inter played well in some of those matches, but why do you think the results have not come against the other top clubs this season?
1: It's been a horrid, horrid stretch of games against the, the bigger teams, man. And like you said, I don't think we've played bad. Like there were spells during each of these games where we were the better side, but matches go for 90 minutes plus, And we just haven't looked like a side that's been able to compete for those 90 plus minutes against the sides that just might either A, want it a little more in the day or B, need it a little bit more in the day. And when you look at each of these teams that we've faced, we've played them all at times where, okay, the Lazio game, we should have won. You know, to lose that 3-1, I I don't think that was a good performance at all. I think that we should have beat Roma as well, especially since we started the game from in front. Um, I think we played Juventus at a time where they might have needed the three points more than we needed it, just in that time that we were playing them, they were still going through the sort of similar rough stuff that they're going through this season, but it was sort of just after they came out of Retiro and they were really, really far behind the pace. Um, The Milan game was absolutely awful, absolutely awful. I can understand them being defending champions, but hey, it's a derby. Everything goes out the window. We just have not come to play a big game until we travel to Bergamo and beat Atalanta. Thank God that we got that victory because otherwise we'd be staring here at the table, staring here at our schedule so far, looking back on it going that's six games out of six big games where we didn't collect a victory. So hopefully that'll propel us into at least getting something out of this game with you guys. But yeah, our record against the big teams this season, it doesn't give me a lot of confidence.
0: Yeah. And Atalanta almost snuck back into that match. Actually, it's funny because it started very similarly to how Napoli's match against Atalanta went with Atalanta getting an early penalty, Luckman converting it, and then inter comes back into the match three straight before uh palomino after scoring an own goal <laughs> then, yeah. then scores his first of the season after he just came back from a ban for substance abuse or whatever yeah. it was <laughs> yeah it was. and um and then atalanta kind of put the pressure on at the end but inter hung on even the torino and fiorentina matches weren't terribly convincing i thought while inter deserved to win some of those matches that you mentioned i think Handanovic kind of bailed you guys out in the Torino match. He made a lot of saves in that one. And then you got the late Brozovic goal. The Fiorentina one was probably the game of the season. That was just a wild back and forth. And then a bit of a, a lucky finish. But I don't think I would say that, you know, I think Inter still deserved to win that match. It goes without saying that Inter will need better results you know, against the top clubs in the second half of the season. Otherwise, they're gonna end up on the wrong side of the tie break. And you know, at the moment only six points separate second through seventh in the table. So if everyone keeps the pace, which you know, we'll have to wait and see if that happens, and those tiebreakers could be really important. One last difference between 2020, 21, and this season is that Inted went from being a buying club to a selling club and you've alluded to this a bit earlier in the pod in the last two seasons leading up to the Scudetto Inter spent about a total of 320 million euros to bring players in over the same time Inter generated about 150 million euros in player sales and loans now I get the accounting is more complex with amortization and all these things but the point I'm trying to make is that guys were brought in to improve the squad like Lukaku, Ericsson, Barella, Hakimi who were all key to winning the Scudetto that season. And then since then, because of those financial challenges, Inter have been forced to sell players like Hakimi and Lukaku, even though he was ultimately brought back. And the net spend has been positive, which is good for the books, but not necessarily good for the quality on the pitch. So two questions. First, if you could give us just a, a quick sort of update on the financial situation at Inter, because there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Inter needs to generate so much money uh, in player sales by the end of the calendar year. There's been talks about Sooning potentially looking for buyers of the club. So if you could give us an update on that situation. And then second, I think you might have already answered this one, but do you think that financial situation is affecting Inter's ability to compete?
1: Yeah, really good questions, man. And, you know, some even us Interfans who wake up and check the news every single day, even we don't still know the full story of what's going on with the ownership situation. So basically, you know, Steven Zhang and Suning, they keep borrowing against their loans, borrowing against their debts, which, you know, as a private company is okay to do. It's not not the first football club in the world that's done it, but you get to a point where there's no coming back from this sort of debt as a company. Now, unless you'd wake up tomorrow and China was to completely change their laws and say that, no, you can now invest in foreign companies and foreign projects once again, then, you know, maybe we could think about a different future with Suning in charge. But all the signs just point to more loans and more debt. We currently have a 255 million euro loan from Oaktree Capital that we need to repay. If not by the end of this financial year coming, they need to refinance re- refinance that in the next couple of months before the deadline hits, which would just be more debt. That probably actually tick us over to a billion euros in debt in total, which pretty much puts you out at an almost unbuyable level. And the fact that only the fact is that we're Inter, we're Inter, and that's the only reason we could still probably get a buyer. Because Joe, who who in the world is going to put up a billion euros for Inter? Who's going to put up a billion euros for any Italian club? I mean, let's be real. Inter, Inter's inter got problems, but Serie A's got problems of their own. Italy's got problems of their own in terms of being a marketable league. If you had a billion euros, man, you'd rather chuck it into Brighton or you'd rather chuck it into Wolverhampton Wolves than you'd want to chuck it into Juve or Milan or even Napoli and Inter just because of the inconsistencies of Italy but that's beside the point what's more important is that as you said trickling into the next part of your question this is having a knock on effect on the players performances on the pitch and that was evident from the moment antonio conte left this isn't something that's new and now it's just gotten to a point where we're struggling big time on the pitch i mean you got to think when when it all first started to go to dip and go pear shaped for us we were on top of the league and we had we had the best forwards. We had the most promising midfield. We had the best back line and we had the best wing back in the country. Like this inter side was ready to dominate for another couple of extra seasons. And had we had Conte and Oriali stay there and Pinto stay in the back room, um, the trainer, everything would have been roses. But as he said, dominoes start to fall. You sell Hakimi straight away. You sell Lukaku straight away. Two of the massive pillars in the starting 11 leave. Antonio Conte and his whole entire regime walk with him. Straight away, you've got these athletes that have never really won anything tangible in their life, go from winning the biggest prize in the country to going back to, oh, crap, we're back to square one here. We don't really have that same drill sergeant manager. We don't have that same sort of structure that we did before. We need to work even harder. It's not easy for people to work harder, especially when they feel like they deserve, they they finally reach the cusp of what they need to do. But It can get worse before it gets better from here. I know a lot of Inter fans think that, you know, we've seen the worst of it. For me, the worst of the worst is when Skriniar doesn't renew his contract and that creates a riff in the back room and someone like Pepe Marotta decides to walk from his role as the director of the team. And I think that's still a very, very possible option. So I'll start to be happy. I'll start to smile again if Skriniar renews his contract because these sort of things are a sign of, where the club is at in terms of negotiating with the board, where the the club is at in terms of their prospects and their, um, you know, what they're keen for for the next few years. You give the armband to someone like Milan Skriniar and the rest of the locker room falls into place. You don't renew his contract and you just send a direct message to all of the players and personnel in the squad that you're next. So I would say to any Inter fans listening to this right now, it might seem like we've seen the worst of the worst of the situation, but if milan skrnea does not sign that contract do not get too emotionally attached to barella or bastoni because they will be next
0: yeah it's uh, not a great situation and chances are oak tree probably wants inter to refinance because that likely means for taking sure. on a, you know a higher interest rate and and what they really want is for sooning to default on the loan because then they basically take the club which I mean that's what happened at Milan and they ended up winning the Scudetto, but probably not a situation you want to be in. It is worth noting though that Inter haven't exactly like obviously you know this is a situation that the club have created with taking on the debt they have, but they haven't exactly had much luck on their side either. Like you mentioned, the Chinese laws that's completely out of the control of the club, and that that's definitely put a lot of financial pressure under the club. You know now we're seeing it even in Italy with um, a lot of clubs had benefited from some tax breaks or, or tax deferrals from the Italian government that they could spread some of their tax payments. And now the Italian government's come calling on all the clubs and there don't seem like they're going to back down. So that's more money going out the door. And then you have, you know, the Christian Eriksen situation where very yeah. unfortunate what happened with him. And then because of uh, the pacemaker that he has or, or whatever, whatever it is that he can't play in Italy. So he's forced to leave. Okay. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll talk a little bit about the World Cup break and we'll preview the match on Wednesday.
1: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment
0: Welcome to part two of the Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Napoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and at our website at fortsanapolipress.com. Okay, so the big story with all the domestic leagues really, and definitely said, yeah, is how will these teams come back from the World Cup break? So I just wanted to take a few minutes and, and talk about that specifically with respect to Inter. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Inter had seven players at the World Cup in Qatar. Is that right?
1: Six or seven. I can't remember off the top yeah. of my head now, but you're definitely close.
0: Okay. So let's start with Andre Onana, he played one game for Cameroon before he left the team after a disagreement with coach uh, Rigobert Song. I, I think he basically felt like Song was too old school. <laughs> he, you know, he wanted to play out of the back and Song wanted him to go long. So, they had their disagreement, he left the team. You know, is that a concern for you in terms of sort of the lack of discipline or the disregard for the coach's instructions or were you just happy that he returned early and it wasn't due to an injury?
1: A bit of both, man. A bit of both. Like, you can tell that Onana's a very, very charismatic sort of dude. And if I'm, what I'm reading correctly is that he had, a, he had a bust up with the manager because the manager told him that basically, you know, you need to play more constricting. You need to play the more I want. Don't bring the ball up as much. Which, you know, fair enough. If you're the coach in the World Cup, what you say goes. <laughs> for, but I've read a lot more that. There's a lot of ins and outs that people disagree with about that manager in Cameroonian football. Because he's so new at the club, I'm willing to just completely forget about it. Like they're almost unrelated issues because I know how much he's enjoying his time at Inter. I know how much he enjoys the fans here as well. I can see the friendships that he's starting to build and his on-the-pitch performances have been well above average. We've asked for a new goalkeeper. You know, Fans like me have been screaming for a new goalkeeper for years now to get Handanovic out of the sticks because he's just at his age, he's just not up to par at all anymore. So we'll we'll see how Onana goes. I dare say that if he is going to have an issue with anybody at the club, we'll have enough people in the locker room or in the personnel to make sure that it doesn't get to anywhere near an aggressive point or a point where there's any animosity. But hey, these sort of things are always open to interpretation, always open to what happens. So I don't think we've seen the last of Onana's drama, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and shout out to Simone Inzaghi for managing to switch. I know most Interisti wanted Onana to start sooner than he did. Handanovic, you know, he's actually I think he's been pretty good this season, but he does occasionally let in a weak goal and often enough to make you say this is why we need Onana to be starting. But it seems like Inzaghi's found a way to make that work. And Handanovic has taken on more of a locker room leader role and uh, sort of another goalkeeper coach. So credit to Inzaghi for that. A similar question can be asked of Lukaku. He was in the Belgium squad after missing most of the Serie campaign with that hamstring injury. He didn't play in Belgium's opening match against Canada, and then he had just a brief substitute appearance against Morocco before he played the second half against Croatia. He squandered three really good chances in that match, including just a sitter from a few yards in front of an empty goal. It's probably not a shock that he was out of form after such a long absence, but does that concern you? Or again, are you just happy that he's back and didn't aggravate that injury?
1: I'm happy that Belgium went out as early as they did. That's for sure. Because to see him get to the training grounds earlier than everybody else, I've been very critical of Lukaku this season, Joe, on my own channel. Like I've thrown some very almost unnecessary shade towards him, but that's only because like I'm a critical sort of guy and, I remember there was one There was one game this season where he was like sort of posted up something on Instagram about him flirting in the crowd with a girl who was looking at him at an intergame. And I'm like, what, what are you doing, man? Like, don't you realize you, you need to really earn your clout? back here in this industry. You don't have time to just piss away almost. And that's what he started to act like. Like he had all the time in the world to come back and integrate himself on his terms. Like every small injury that a guy this size suffers now is detrimental to his recovery and his return to full-time football. He needs to realize that another poor season, another poor season and a half is the difference between playing at clubs like Inter and Chelsea and then having to go back and play for Everton or West Brom, or anyone worse. And I I mean that with all my heart because he needs to be careful. And I hope he has returned from this World Cup with a fire in his belly because the chances that he missed were not new to Romelu Lukaku, but he shouldn't be missing those chances in the World Cup. He went there, unfit, left there, unfit, unfocused. It's all on him now. It'll be an easy situation for fans like me who have been critical to handle because either one or two things are going to happen, Joe. Either Romelu Lukaku is going to pick up form or he's going to stay in the same form that he's in now. It's going to be so easy to see. It's not one of those players that you're going to sit on the fence for for much longer. Either he hits the ground running from January through to May or it's... Marotta might put on a brave face for the media, but we're not going to renew this loan. We'll send him straight back to Chelsea if we need to. And that's not going to be a problem.
0: That's exactly what I was going to mention, that his career could very easily derail and come to an abrupt end even, or at least fizzle out, because like you said, he's on loan. He needs to redeem himself to convince Inter to redeem him. Otherwise, like you said, he's going back to London. Chelsea are probably not going to play him. They're going to look to offload him, and then who knows where he ends up and whether that's a big club, uh, a competitive club. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Now, Inter had two players in the Netherlands squad that reached the quarterfinal. Stefan de Vrij didn't play at all, so I guess that's nothing to worry too much about. Although, rather unfortunately, he suffered an ankle bruise in training after he returned. As a result, he didn't play in Inter's friendly against Sassuolo on Thursday. Do you think he'll be in the squad for the Napoli match, or is Francesco Acerbi likely to start in his place now?
1: I think Acerbi starts in his place. I think you'll definitely see Devray in the squad unless he's really, really hurt to the point where he's, he's complaining about his pain because um, Inzaghi does like Devray, and even if he's 60% fit, he'll put him on the bench. So I'm all for Acerbi starting over him. I think Acerbi's been a better centre-back than De Vrij this season. I think when called upon, Acerbi is playing like that sort of player that knows common sense. Like I'm really, I'm at the end of every single contract and every one year extension I get from here at a big club is gold. So Achadby's playing for a renewal as well. Whether or not we give it to him for an extra year, I'm not too sure. We'll have to see what our financial situation is like in the next few months and whether we've even got the wage gap in the wage room and the salary wiggle room to to accommodate for the players like Achadby and Jekyll, who would be willing to sign for an extra year. But if we're not going to meet their salary, can they get their salary demand somewhere else? For a player like Achadby, the answer is probably not. For a player like Jekyll, Hundred percent, And I'm a huge Eden Jekyll fan. He's my number nine. I will always be a huge fan of him because for what he does at his age for our club is just incredible. And a lot of our fans can get a little critical of Eden Jekyll because he's slow. A lot of times these passes are being misplaced. Now to that, I say, where is your 36 year old at full-time football career? Because what Eden Jekyll does is quite, quite incredible. He's a, he's a timeless, timeless player in this sport for me. But to answer your question, once again, like, Devrai's situation—it's. I think he's leaving, man. I think this is the last season that you see him at Inter. Whether or not we agree to extend him, if we do, it's only to get any transfer fee for him possible because we got him for a free from Lazio when he did sign. So even getting three to four million for Devray would be a full-blown plus for and probably contribute to the wage of somebody else.
0: On the age thing, I mean, if the World Cup demonstrated anything, is that that age group, that 35, 36 year old category, still have plenty to offer if you know they know how to manage their minutes and, and their, yeah. their body and all of that. On the Vry, I almost feel like this injury might be a bit of a blessing in disguise because as you kind of alluded to, Inzaghi is pretty loyal to his players, but Echarby has probably been the better of the two. So that makes it a bit of an easier decision. The other uh interplayer in the Netherlands squad was Denzel Dumfries. He played every single minute in the Netherlands run to the quarterfinals. He played the full 90 minutes in all three group stage matches. He played the full 90 minutes in the round of 16 against the USA, and then the full 120 minutes in the quarterfinals against Argentina. I did see that he replaced Raul Belanova for about 20 minutes in the Sassuolo match. I take it that means that he'll be fit to start against Napoli.
1: He'll definitely be starting against you guys. And he's someone that I'd look out for if I was your Napoli players, because and I'm not, I'm not his biggest fan either. I know exactly what Denzel Dufri's limitations are. I know that he cannot really take on a man directly and beat him. He does not have that sort of one on one technical ability. But if there's one player that's going to be able to get in behind your line when you start to get a little bit creative and start to get a little trigger happy with the ball, it's going to be him. Uh, I think he'll be the key man that leaves Inter, not in January, at the end of the season, only because, once again, Marotta had a very good time purchasing him for only about half million, 15 in total with bonuses. Denzel Dumfries is a player that will leave for anywhere over 30, 35, I think. I said this on my channel a lot. When it comes down to the World Cup, you need one and a half to two good games max to put you on a pedestal and for clubs to really want to sign you. And, yeah, the Premier League clubs were already aware of Denzel Dulfries before the World Cup and they're firmly locked in on him now. So I was very happy to see him perform well um, because I knew that he, w- he would need a just a couple of good games, a couple of assists and a goal under his belt and he becomes a, a huge, huge attractive asset for us. So I'm happy with the way he performs and I think he'll perform well enough for Inter for now until the end of the season to warrant that price tag, whether it's to go to Spurs, United, Chelsea, wherever, but you could definitely see him moving.
0: Yeah, I think he'll definitely pose a a matchup issue for Mario Rui on that side, and we'll talk about starting lineups later, but Napoli's center back situation is a little bit up in the air because Rachmani just came back from injury, Kim picked up an injury at the World Cup, though he seems to have recovered, so... I'm leaning towards Juan Jesus starting on that side, which is even more problematic because obviously he's not not exactly uh, young anymore and not the quickest. So Dumfries is definitely a guy to look out for. And we might have to see someone like Khabar Scalia track back more to help defend, but then that pulls him out of the attack and out of position and, you know, weakens our attack. So that'll be something that's really interesting to watch out for in this match. Another player who ran a lot, at the World Cup was Marcelo Brozovic, who reached the semi-finals with Croatia against Japan. He ran sixteen point seven kilometers, breaking his own record of sixteen point three kilometers set <laughs> at, at Russia twenty eighteen. Like Dumfries, he clocked a ton of minutes. He played the full ninety minutes in all three group stage matches. He played one hundred twenty minutes in Croatia's shootout win over Japan in the round of sixteen, and he played one hundred fourteen minutes in the shootout win over Brazil in the quarterfinals. Then he played only 50 minutes in the final, and Croatia's coach Zlatko Dalic said after the semifinals that Brozovic was taken out because he felt a muscular twinge. Consequently, he didn't play in the third place game against Morocco. What can you tell us about Brozovic's condition?
1: So Brozovic's condition is just nagging muscular tendons injury. I think it's just a delayed onset of fatigue from the World Cup, which is fine. It would have been nice to rest him a little bit longer because the match against you guys is going to be at a very high intense level. And I think that we'll find out probably in about 24 hours time, I reckon. That's when we're going to start hearing news out of the camp of whether or not he's going to be able to start. I think if Mikatarian didn't pick up that slight injury against Sassuolo, it would have been a much easier decision for Inzaghi and co to say, no, look, leave Marcelo on the bench for either one more half or one more game. But they're going to have to evaluate the conditions of Mikatarian and Brozovic and just say, Who's 70% ready to go? Who can at least start this game? Because our options after that are blit to bottom, man. You know, we'd, Aslani has not had a good season so far. And I think it would be very unfair to expect him to come in against you guys and put in a, a shift, put in a performance. And we all know that if we are really left to our, our last tools in the tank, that Inzaghi might have to force Roberto Gagliadini into that deep and lying role, which nobody ever wants to see, again, against any team, even in the friendlies, let alone against the tabletoppers. So let's just hope, fingers crossed, that one of Mkhitaryan or Brozovic is more than willing and more than ready enough to start the game against you because we need it.
0: In any case, it's sort of less than ideal for Inter. I mean, that was the big concern with this World Cup. You know, what fitness would all these guys come back at? The final two players who won the World Cup with Argentina were Joaquin Correa and Lautaro Martinez. Now That's
1: really nice of you to count Joaquin Correa in this one. You're a (laughs) nice guy. Good guy, Joe.
0: (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I mean, like the Rai Correa didn't feature at all, which was probably a good thing for Interisti. He had... I think he had some sort of knee pain after their final friendly before the World Cup started. So I don't know if that was the reason why or it was just because he was too far down in sort of the depth charts to warrant being played. Personally, and and I was really upset about this. I don't know why, but I, I really felt like Giovanni Simeone was more deserving of the call up than Correa in the first place. But, you know, maybe that's just because I'm an Apple fan but a player who did feature quite often was Lautaro Martinez. He started in Argentina's loss to Saudi Arabia and in the win over Mexico, and then he was used as a substitute after that. It was a bit of an up and down tournament for him. He didn't score a single goal, if I'm correct, from open play, and he had plenty of chances. However, he had one goal that I think it was in the Saudi Arabia match that was sort of controversially ruled out. There was looked like one of these VAR decisions where they missed a player near the touchline or something like that. It feels like it's so long ago now. (laughs) I can't remember exactly, but um, he did score the match winning penalty kick against the Netherlands. So that is a very meaningful contribution. In any case, they both return regardless of whether it's deserved or not as world champions understandably the entire Argentina team partied pretty hard after such a momentous win. Correa was never likely to start against Napoli anyways, but I suspect that late return means that Lautaro will not start this match as well.
1: I don't think Lautaro starting this match. And even if he was fit enough, I think that Dzeko and Lukaku, just because of the way that they've been playing more frequently together in the friendlies. Um, I think that that's going to be the biggest reason why that they start, which is a lot, a lot more physicality up front but at the same time, a little less movement as well. With Lautaro's situation, I swear, I feel like if if that goal was just allowed in the first game, you probably would have seen him go on and play a lot better throughout the tournament, probably convert one or two of those extra chances that he had because, yeah, he will definitely, he will be happy that he's won the World Cup. Obviously, it's it's the pinnacle of the sport, but his impact and his influence in those critical moments was very minimal. So he's another player that you'll definitely see It'll be easy to tell at the end of May, has Lautaro earned his stripes this season? He's always a topic of conversation with, uh, amongst us fans because we know that on his day, he's still one of the best forwards in Serie a. We know that if you give him the right opportunities and the right chances, he'll score goals and make it look like it's his bread and butter and it's easy for him to do. We know as Inter fans that that is not true. He needs to work extremely hard, needs to stay focused, needs a lot of chances. For me personally, I know he's still young at the age of 25 and strikers, strikers do usually peak around about that 27, 28 mark. But for me, he's not the Aguero-esque player that we capped him to be when he was 21 and sign here. I don't put him in that tier of strikers. Like, we've got a lot of our fans, Joe, that'll tell you that, like, you know, Lautaro Martinez is right up there and he's got the potential to be there with the likes of Aguero, like Batistuta. And to me, I'm like, no, you're, you're really reaching two or three tiers above. To me, this guy more so is in the category of a Javier Saviola level player for Argentina. And maybe I'm being a, a little bit too harsh, but I've got fond memories of Argentine hitmen at my club. And right now, you're playing. More like a a Julio Cruz or a Hernan Crespo, and you're getting way more. You get way more field time than both of them did. Way more consistent time, and it's just it's a tough one for me because he's had everything in his artillery, everything in his arsenal to be a real proper predator. But right now he looks about two three tiers off the pace, in my opinion. And that's another player where I thought that we we're going to walk out of the World Cup, Joe, with Martinez's price tag up here. I didn't expect it to be Dumfries that jumped up like that. I really expected the to come out of the World Cup with an 80 million euro price tag on his head. Nowhere near it right now, man. So we're going to have to rethink that whole situation as well. For me, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to cash in on him. I've I've said it a few times on my channel that I'd be more than happy to part ways with him for the right price. Because in this modern day, there's only one or two players in your side that are deemed unsellable. But he's not one of them for me.
0: Yeah, the thing with Lautaro is he's a very streaky player, right? So when he's in a positive streak, the guy seems unstoppable. He just keeps scoring. But when he's in a negative streak, that's when, you know, he's like a very volatile stock on the market. that's just up and down, up and down. And I agree with you, you know, if that goal's allowed against Saudi Arabia, maybe he has a completely different tournament. Maybe that starts one of these positive streaks instead of kind of spun the other way. I'm not sure how I feel about him not starting because on the one hand, he's been fairly prolific against Napoli. I think in his 10 appearances, he has four goals. But then again, two of those goals were as a substitute, and Jekylko and Lukaku have also been fairly prolific against Napoli, so we kinda gotta pick our poison on on that one. It will be interesting to see how the World Cup affects him. Like obviously he's gonna be on Cloud 9 from winning the World Cup, but It wasn't, you know, sort of a personally great tournament for him. He didn't shoot in in the final against France. I mentioned he scored the winner against Netherlands. But I feel like after you win such a big trophy, nothing can make you feel under pressure anymore. Like to step up to be the final shooter in an elimination match in the world cup and score it. If you can keep calm under that. And I know he hasn't always converted every penalty, but I feel like that might take him to another level just in terms of his confidence and, and his coolness. On the other hand, I, I do wonder if this might make him sort of feel fulfilled personally. I don't think so. You know, I have been kind of debating this with myself. If once you win such a big trophy, do you kind of feel like, well, I've I've achieved all I've needed to achieve and, and maybe take your foot off the gas a little bit, but his personality comes off as someone who is more in the category of winning, makes him want to win more. Uh, so I can see this sort of motivating him to play even harder. We've basically covered the the injuries, but let me quickly give maybe any Interisti or are tuning in for this preview, an update on sort of Napoli's World Cup very quickly. We had five players in Qatar, Kim Min-J for South Korea, Matthias Oliveira for Uruguay, Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa for Cameroon, Piotr Zielinski for Poland, and Chuki Lozano for Mexico. They all started for their respective countries, but three of them, Olivetta and Gisa and Lozano, were all eliminated in the group stage. And then the other two, Zielinski and Kim, were eliminated in the round of 16. So they didn't play a whole lot. The only real concern, which I mentioned a bit earlier, was that Kim suffered a calf injury that caused him to miss Korea's third match of the group stage. But then he returned for the round of 16, drubbing against Brazil. I'm pretty sure he just played through the pain for that match because it was so important to him. But he has been training normally with Napoli since he returned. So it appears like he'll be fit to start against Inted. They all returned to training sort of unusually late to me. The five players who participated in the World Cup didn't play in any of our friendly matches during the winter break. They only played in a sort of training session friendly that we had yesterday on Friday against Juve Stabia, which is a Seti Chi club. So we'll see what that means for them. According to the paper, Zielinski and Angisa were sort of the two that seemed to be in the best physical condition in that match which is important because aside from Kim, they're probably the two most important players out of those five that went to the World Cup. At the other two positions, like we have Mario Rui at left back who could play for Oliveira. We have Matteo Politano at right wing so he can play for Lozano. So I'm not too concerned about those other positions. A quick Napoli sort of injury update. We've covered all the, the inter injuries already, but the only guy that we've had injured, he's kind of returned from injury now, is Amir Rachmani who hasn't played in three months after uh, suffering a thigh injury. I believe it was against Cremonese. He did not play in any of those friendly matches either. So his status is a bit up in the air, but he did play in this training session friendly against Uwe Stabia. It sounds like Spalletti is going to just sort of monitor him for the, the final few days of training and then make a decision. But with that, why don't we get to the starting lineups? I think we've kind of... Knocked it all out with just the discussion of the various different players. But very quickly, who do you think is going to start for Inter against Napoli?
1: So obviously, we'll have Onana starting in goals. The back three will be Skriniar, Bastoni and Acerbi. You can almost guarantee that. Uh, Denzel Dumfries will start on the right-hand side. Federico Di Marco, who's probably been our best player this season, will start on the left. Um, Barella will be obviously our box-to-box midfielder, um, starting in that midfield. Three, that will also be occupied by Hakan Chandanolu, who'll play that little bit more of an advanced role if Brozovic comes back. Slightly more reserved role in a register sense if Mikatarian is on the pitch. So depending on Brozovic or Mikatarian being the last midfielder in there will sort of also dictate Hakan's position and the way that he plays the game. And up top, we're going to start with Lukaku and Zheko, if I'm not mistaken. I'll be very surprised if anything in that lineup changes. If there's any sort of late fatigue or injuries, then that obviously comes into play. But I don't think you'll see too much different from what I've just described there.
0: Okay, yeah, that's pretty much what I was expecting as well, especially listening to you talk about all the other players. For Napoli, there are a few questions, including whether we line up in a 4-3-3, which is our usual formation, or whether we go back to the 4-2-3-1. In either case, we'll play with a back four in front of Alex Meret, I mentioned the sort of doubts at center back. I think we'll have Kim and Juan Jesus, but I definitely wouldn't be surprised if it's Kim and Rachmani, which is easily our, our strongest center back pairing. It really comes down to, you know, do you play a better player who's out of form or a worse player who's in form and, I'm leaning more towards Juan Jesus at the moment, at least, but that can definitely change over the next couple of days. We'll play Mario Rui at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right back. The midfield will depend on the formation, but in either case, I expect Stanislav Lobotka and and Gisa to start. If we play in a 4-2-3-1, then they'll play as that double pivot. Now, I think Spalletti will only use the 4-2-3-1 if he wants to get Giacomo Raspadori into the starting eleven. Raspadori certainly made a convincing argument that he should be starting with how well he played in our friendlies. If you include the match against Uvestabia, he scored seven goals over the five matches. So he's, he's a type of guy that I've mentioned this on the pod before, but it seems like he has one sort of mentality whether it's playing in the Champions League or for the Azzurri or in a friendly. He just plays the same way, which I really, really like about him, especially because historically Napoli have not exactly been the most mentally strong club. If we play in a 4-3-3, then we have a similar conundrum with the third midfielder as we have at centre-back. Zielinski is the strongest option, but he's only had really one week of proper training. The alternatives are Tanguy Ndombele and Elif Elmas, who are again more fit but lower quality given those reports that i mentioned about the uva match i think we will see our regular 4-3-3 with lobotka's the regista behind zielinski and and gisa and then depending on the situation i think zielinski will be replaced by either raspadori or Ndombélé. so if we need to score then we probably bring on raspadori switch yeah. to a 4-2-3-1 if we have a lead or if we're just protecting a draw even then maybe Ndombélé replaces him in the midfield at some point in the second half and then i think the front three is fairly predictable Helia will play on the left wing politano on the right wing and victor Osiman will play up top okay so let's close the pod quickly with some predictions how do you think this match is going to play out
1: oh man I'd I'd love to be able to sit here and say, this is the game where we turn the season around and make sure that we know as a bare minimum that we're going to be a top four fight side this season. We might be able to scare you guys at the top a little bit, but Even a win for me wouldn't put us anywhere near back into a title challenge. For me, this season, like I've always called it on my channel, is a top four and vibe season. It's a top four and cup run vibe season. We just need to make sure we finish in the top four because finishing outside of a Champions League group zone and stage in 2023 onwards is a disaster. It feels like receiving a ban or a sanction. Like when you can't qualify for the Champions League, you need to rethink your entire club strategy going forward for the short term. So. For me, three points will be celebrated heavily because I think that's a big, big way to make sure that we will have enough points at the end of the calendar year to finish in the top four. In terms of just this game, I can just see it being... I can see both coaches who have got a set of balls on them, but they won't show them unless they're really forced to, man. Spalletti and Inzaghi, first game of the season... New Year's hangover and everything. If you offered Spalletti and Inzaghi a point, they would break bread at the table right now and be happy with it, man. So I'm going to go with a very slow first half, 0-0 halftime. And I think that we're going to see 1-1 full time. If not, it's going to be a Napoli victory by the sole goal, 1-0. But if we can come out of it just with a point, at least we can reset our expectations again and go on and perform as well as we can domestically for the end of the season. But to any Inter fans watching, uh, so it's any Napoli fans watching you on this, don't expect me to be here with my chest saying that Inter's going to win. It's going to be all good because, yeah, I think that Inter's still got a lot, a lot of rough things to deal with this season.
0: Okay, well, first of all, you're preaching to the choir in terms of top <laughs> four, because it's not fun to start a season with that being your objective, just get back into the Champions League. So we know yeah. we know that pain all too well. But mm-hmm. I completely agree with you in terms of your prediction. I think we're going to see that rust of having not played collectively, sort of competitively for a couple of months. So I think it's going to be low scoring. My prediction was going to be exactly the same. 1-1 draw. I was going to go with goals from Oseman and Jekyll. Yeah, Obviously, Pretty I cool. want to win, uh, but I think I would be content with the draw at the Meazza. Mm-hmm. Inter have been a very difficult opponent for Napoli over the past five seasons. Uh, I tweeted about this earlier this week, but we have a record of only one win, four draws, and five losses in the last 10 Serie A meetings. I mean, there was the Coppa Italia win, wow. which... It wasn't even, I mean, that was in the Gattuso era, and we just barely pulled a 1-0 win. Mm. The one win in Serie A was on May 19th, 2019. And as Friend of the pot at Zuri Fan Phil pointed out, our last win at the Mayatza was in April of 2017. <laughs> so it's been a long time since we've won there. Yeah. That said, I mean, our last four meetings have been very, very competitive. Last season, there was the 1-1 draw where Insigne scored from the penalty spot, and then Jekyll equalized early in the second half. There was the 3-2 Inter win, which was the match where, unfortunately, Men broke his face. And yeah. we almost came back into that one. We were down 3-1, and then Merton scored a beautiful goal. And then we missed two huge chances late in that match. There was the Mario Rui header that Handanovic yeah. just got enough to Ugh. tip it onto the roof of the goal. And then Merton's had a, a, a sort of an open volley that he skied over the bar. Two seasons ago, there was another 1-1 draw, and then there was a 1-0 Inter win. That was the game where... Inter were awarded a penalty kick, which Lukaku converted. It was the only goal of the match. But before he did, Insigne said something to the official and got himself sent off. So we played most of that match down a man. So even though we haven't won recently, I I think they've been competitive enough for that to not be terribly concerning for me. And irrespective of all that, I mean, it's an entirely different Napoli team. So I don't put too much weight into the past results. What concerns me more is the fact that This is probably a must-win match for Inter, you know, if you want to have any hopes of staying in the Scudetto race. At the very least, it's a must-not-lose. And as we talked about in part one, Inter have already lost five matches this season. And I looked into, just because I apparently have way too much time on my hands, but (laughs) (laughs) I looked into, you know, how often the Scudetto winner happened to lose more than five matches And as it turns out, if we only look at sort of the three points for a win era, it's only happened three times. It actually, if you extend that further out, it's only happened five times in the last 60 seasons, Um, even if you adjust for sort of the lower teams. So if you sort of take an average five divided by 38 and apply that to the number of, of matches, it's only happened five times in the last 60 seasons. But that I would take with a bit of grain of salt because I think in the, the two points for a win era teams played a lot more to not lose than they did to win so for sure I'll just look at sort of the last 30 seasons but that's still 3 out of 30 is is a pretty low rate so yeah. for me it's a, a really really important match for Inter <laughs> finally I think Napoli need to watch out for two things in particular one is uh Inter set piece from the corner kick where they play the ball to the first post I've noticed that that's done fairly successfully. I think their goals against Bologna and Atalanta from that routine, Parisage scored that way against us last season. And then the other thing is that Napoli need to play the full 90 minutes. One thing, despite the struggles about this inter team is that they don't quit. Um, we've already seen inter win two matches in stoppage time first against Torino and then against Fiorentina. Yep. So that's all I wanted to cover today. Um, Anthony, before I let you go, any final thoughts on this match?
1: No, I think it's going to be, as you said, it's it's the blockbuster match of the round. It's going to be huge. You're going to see a lot of rust, a lot of dust, but these are some of the best players in the league. So I, I am really, really looking forward to having Serie A back, having Culture back, and to be able to start it against Napoli. It's going to be huge, man. So, yeah. Let's just hope for, um, for a let's hope for a game that's not too heavily impacted by officiating and refereeing decisions because we've seen too many big games in Italy go pear shaped from that. Man.
0: Yeah, that's always the one thing that, no matter what club you uh, you support, <laughs> that's the one thing we all unanimously agree on. Let's just hope that the officials don't have a big say in in whatever the outcome is. But Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak to me on New Year's Day.
1: Bro, thank you so much for having me, Joe. It was really awesome to see you again. Always love talking culture with you. And yeah, I'm sure we'll message each other after the game, but whatever happens, let's hope that both... I'm firmly, firmly hoping that both of our clubs finishing the top four at the end of the season. I've got some family ties to Napoli and I've always sort of just enjoyed them in the background as much as I possibly can being an Inter fan. So thank you once again and thank you to all the listeners. I really appreciate it.
0: Awesome, and thank you. It was it was my pleasure, certainly. You can find Anthony on Twitter at antprivitera, and you can find the Inter Worldwide page at interww. You can find me on Twitter at joel underscore d 5 and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Fartzanapli Pod. I will be back very soon to review this match and to preview our next one, which is only a few days later against Sam Toria. I believe that's on Sunday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!
1: Podcast Network.